This is the Saturday Supplement. I'm Frank Lewis. The end of sunshine at the end of May and beginning of June was very special. Swimming every morning at Dundag, surrounded by high mountains in lush woodland. Another highlight, an amazing four-hour walk from the back entrance to Dinas, over the old Ware to Glenagh, then along the route cut out by the mountain Mehel, and eventually to the new Tommy's car park. Different views of, of lake and mountain, the richness of tropical rainforest, a lushness and extensiveness of, of rhododendron blossom that I've never seen before. Amazing to see, and horrific to think of the implications. Today, Johnny Leary, the 6th of June 1923 to the 9th of February 2004, master Irish traditional musician from Steve Lucre, who played the button accordion. On this centenary of his birth, we tour his native Steve Lucre, guided by his daughter Ellen Healy on tin whistle and grandson Brian O'Leary on accordion. Looking down over the paps at the ruin of the house where he was born at Malagavan, a place of, of music and a little sadness. Ellen and Brian play Con Tygo's jig at the now-empty house at Gillon where Johnny and his wife Lil raised their three children remembering the regular music sessions. We have the Gillon slides. At the entrance to Cadbury's for, for 37 years cycling the eight or nine miles from Gillon to be here ten minutes before the eight o'clock work start. Brian and Ellen play two hornpipes, Cronin's and Callaghan's. In Scarlet Glen and Lions Bar, Sunday night sessions, the ghosts of, of Padraig O'Keefe, Seamus Ennis, Kieran McMahona, John and Julia Clifford. John Reedy told of, of Johnny's advice on starting the Padraig O'Keefe Festival, and we have the Scarlet Glen Polkas. To start, Christy Cronin and Pat O'Sullivan sing A Lament for Johnny Leary at Jimmy O'Brien's pub, the Killarney place to hear Steve Lucre music and talk football. Michelle O'Sullivan on concertina, Ellen Healy on tin whistle and Brian O'Leary on the box play two slides, the quarry cross and the hare in the corn. Johnny's first played in, in public as a 12 and a half year old in Teddy Willie's Hall in Guinea Ellen, Michelle and Brian with two of Johnny's slides, the star above the garter and the Lachine slide. For over 40 years, Johnny played every Sunday and Friday night in Dan Connell's pub in Knocknagree. For most of those years, he played with Dennis Murphy, now Polkas, John Collins' farm, and the Knocknagree Polka. In Bally Desmond, at the memorial to Johnny's first teacher, the blind fiddler Tom Billy Murphy, who travelled the country by donkey and cart. And to end the programme, Brian, Ellen, and Michelle played two jigs, the Trooper and Tom Billy's. Today's programme was recorded on June the 8th and 9th. Your story and Johnny Leary, Steve Lucre Music, are the places we're visiting and we'll use them in later programmes. Write Frank Lewis, Gillon, Mangerton Road, Muckrus Killarney. Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. Text 083 300 3300 or phone 066 7123 We're now at Mylegavan in Hedford, known as Jib, where Johnny Leary was born on the 6th of June 1923. And the, the remains of the house are here still behind us. You remember visiting the house? We used to cycle back from Golan, where I grew up, my sister and my father and I. Yeah. And what do you remember of the view from the house? You had a view of the paps from, from the other side. Yeah. And in the other side, facing this way, all bog, yeah. which he was very proud of. He loved the idea of bog, was right. the best thing. <laughs> ever, ever, <laughs> yeah. ever. Th- there was always music in the house here. Johnny was six and a half when he started to play. Yes, he might dispute that, but you know, sometimes he'd say five and a half or five and a quarter, whoever he was entertaining at the time. Yeah. His uncle, who used to cycle to town every Saturday to Killarney, was into gadgets of different sorts. I think he used to nearly buy a watch every couple of months. He bought a 10-key Melodian in Clancy's. That was a music shop in Market Cross in Killarney. And uh, he brought it home with the intention of learning. Now, he did learn a bit, I suppose. But my father used to take it up when he'd be gone out 
because he wouldn't have had permission to to use it while he'd be there. Yeah. And like yeah. he said himself, he'd pull the two years off me if I went if I went near it while he was there. He said. Yeah. So um, he used to take it up and very easily, I'd say, managed to play a couple of tunes without any formal training. Now the music, you see, his uncle Dan was also living here. Tom Billy Murphy, the blind fiddle player, used to come to teach him and others in the locality as well. He used to travel around in a donkey. He used to write the tunes for Dan. His method was figures for the figures of the of the strings. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, was Tom Billy's repertoire was ma- mainly jigs, and, and Dan used to play them exactly as given by Tom Billy and my father would often tease him in later years watch Dan now and he'd start off the lark in the morning he'd put in a few different variations and Dan would stop playing and look over at him and get really annoyed that he was (laughs) wasn't precisely as it as it should be like everything had to be correct then some of his aunts and uncles had gone on to America and they used to send back the old 78s they always had a gramophone he used to send, uh, we'll say, the famous Michael Coleman from Sligo, who was, they all thought was magic, and James Morrison, then who had a different style again, but he was up from the Sligo direction as well. But Dennis Murphy kind of played a good bit like James Morrison. They had the, the reels, they were very famous for the reels, and they had a lovely, lively style. And then there was um, Mick Doyle, who would have been from Beaufort area, Jimmy's uncle, and there was a 78 belonged to him as well. And there was a beautiful hornpipe called Mick Doyle's hornpipe. My father was played, and he'd say to Jimmy, come on now, we'll play Mick Doyle's hornpipe. And as you say, there, there, was a, there was a big American influence. He had probably granduncles who were in a group called O'Leary's Irish Minstrels. And I actually Googled them one time, but there's very little about them, but you can find them. And they used to send the, the records he had another uncle living in the house Jor who had um, scoliosis was born like that he had a gift of fixing bicycles and gramophones and I remember when I came back here there was a few gramophones left that hadn't been collected yeah. after he died Johnny's mother wasn't married when he was born he, he no. suffered because of that he did um, at the time the, the stigma attached to being an unwed and you'd be told what you were in, yeah, in not too nice terms, exactly yeah, yeah. But he never spoke about it to us when we were children, never spoke about... And he always, when he'd refer to his grandparents, they'd be, he'd call them the old lady and the old lad, who we always thought were his parents. He started working for farmers when he was maybe 12. Mm. And when he'd meet older men, they'd throw, they would throw oh, the... Yeah. Yes. No, he, I'd say he, he did fine in school. He was always prompting the wrong answers to, for every kind of mischief and that like <laughs> his mother went off you were saying to, to she America. went off to Boston yeah yes and she got re, she got married there and had family but she never came back or he never had any communication with her directly she used to communicate alright with her own brothers the, especially the man the man that used to play the fiddle yeah they had communication and then there was other first cousins also who went to Boston and they I think she married a shaman from Glengariff and there was a first cousin of hers also married to a brother of his yeah an uncle told you of Johnny's great energy. Pat Leary, who would be first cousin of his, really, he would be Dan Leary's son. Dan was the man who played the fiddle. And Pat was talking about him after my father died. He called, he said, I never saw anything like the energy he had. That he'd cycle from Cadbury's factory, which was eight or nine miles, and he'd eat his dinner and he'd be up to the bog. And he's, it was never drudgery like, that he'd be whisting away while he'd be turning the turf and footing the turf yeah. and like going at a very fast rate and then after that he might go out and play for a dance, a house dance after that and same cycle the following day again like he'd always play music at night yeah. after a day's work yeah. he believed in work 
always music, the, the American connection, born to a single mother. Johnny's great energy. Brian, what were the stories of Mela Gavan you grew up with? Particularly through his great friend and neighbour, the great Jimmy Doyle, who only passed away back in January. Jimmy was always telling me stories of Mullica Van and the great house that this place was because, of course, Ella mentioned Dan Leary and not only did Jimmy hold Johnny in such high regard but he often spoke, even at length, about the great relationship he formed with Johnny's uncle, Dan. And when Jimmy was young, he learned so much music from Johnny, he idolised him and yeah. he would say that he was try to copy himself in the waivers, he would say, because, you know, he was fascinated with himself and Dennis Murphy yeah. and that partnership. Yeah. And... Um, you know, even later we might play a jig that he says was the first jig he ever learned from Johnny Leary that he remembers learning here in the house. But then in later years himself and then formed a very formidable, similar to Dennis and Johnny, an accordion and fiddle duet. Is there any particular memory that you have from being inside in the house? I just remember it was vacated at the time, like the emptiness, but it was spotlessly clean and everything was in its place, very neat. Is there a piece of music the two of you might play that, that uh, maybe would pick up something of where we are? Jimmy Dyle always said it was the first jig he learned from Johnny and he also specifically mentioned that it was the first tune he was crossing the keys which was a big deal for any accordion player when you think you can cross the keys you think you've made it um, but I think it's called Contigos yes. and he was a, a, another accordion concertina player I think from Guinea yes. that Johnny would have learned a lot of music from <laughs> Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee I'll sing of Johnny Larry Oh, we knew and loved so well Marking the centenary of the birth of one of our great traditional musicians box player Johnny Leary. We're now in Galan, Guinea-Guilla, where Johnny and his wife Elizabeth and their three children lived for all of their growing up years for, for 30 years or so your father, Johnny, and your mother, Elizabeth, Ellen, the romance started very early, but your mother's father didn't want them marrying. She was sent away. She was sent off to America with her sister. Why was that? My grandfather didn't approve of the match because uh, he was he was illegitimate. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she was sent away? She was um, 20, I suppose, when she went to America. Herself and her sister, my grandmother, saved up the... I think there was children's allowance at the time and she saved that up and I think their aunts in America also chipped in but they had to pay them back then when they got on their feet when yeah. they got to work on that So how long did she stay in America? She spent eight years there and she described she said I hated every minute of it but she I'd say she was very lonely she always wanted to come back home and then of course she had 
the man waiting for her. Yeah. And you described the journey out was something that... Yes, it was um, at the time there were converted warships and she said it was the most awful, like you could smell the paint and it was in January 1949 she went to America. She said there was a load of immigrants going that time between loneliness and seasickness. Yeah. That yeah. She said 11 days and she said she could never again look at the sea after it. When she went there, she told them that she was living near Killarney and all they wanted to know about was the lakes of Killarney. She said, I'd never seen the lakes of Killarney. We're standing at the back of the house. The house, the, the slating is still more or less complete. So many memories of this house. My father married in here because my grandparents were getting older and there was also her brother, a single uncle, who lived here as well. And it was he inherited the house, ultimately. Yeah because her mother was invalided she was invalided in her early 60s because at the time there was no hip replacements and what they did was yeah. they put in a pin to deaden the nerve in her hip which meant she couldn't walk anymore yes. and yes. it was very tough on her yeah. but um, sure it made for happy times it was nice to grow up with grandparents like like yeah. for example it was my grandfather took me to school the first day yeah. and right. he used to ha- borrow the donkey from over here from the neighbours and every Friday when he'd go for the pension he'd get us a block of ice cream and the treat of the donkey the driving the donkey Galan, with its acre, was a busy place, providing for the table. We had our own cow, our own hens, and my mother used to milk the cow every evening, and sometimes the cow, what particular cow we'd have, would be kind of a bit wild, and she'd to put on the spencil, because he'd kick her back or kick the bucket. Mm. <laughs> so we said, with one tank of milk going to the creamery, it supplied milk for the house as well, and we'd our own hens, and then my father used to do a garden as well, where he'd set the potatoes and the cabbage and that every year. There were relations all round. An aunt came for six weeks every summer. Yes, my mother's sister used to come because her mother was living here, you see, so she'd come to visit. She'd make an effort to come every summer for a long stint. And there'd be a lot of house parties in, true, like they'd go for the music session and the dancing, and then they'd come back here afterwards. There wouldn't be enough on the... So they'd often go into the, the brightness of the following day. Every musician that would come around from different places would come here. Um, Dennis Murphy would bring a lot of different musicians and there'd be sessions here and a bit of singing as well. Kieran McMahon would come often. Seamus Innes, that was, he was a great man. To, to, he was, at the time, I think he was working with the BBC and he used to collect the music, collect the tunes. So he'd come and stay with Dennis and then he'd visit and then they'd all go to visit Potter Keefe in Scatterglen. There'd be drink at the, at the music sessions. Yeah. We were able to acquire the punch bond. Someone from, I won't say the locality because it was illegal, which was, we'll say, just let's just say it was uh, over the border, would come selling. They'd test it then by putting a match to it to see you now would it light, and then it was good, and they'd hold it up to the light, you now was it clear? The secret then was, you see, to put the brown sugar, and so you had the colour of the oh, yeah. of the real punch, and in the off time then when it wouldn't be used to be buried out here somewhere yeah. in case there'd be any Should we dig? <laughs> no, I don't I don't think there's any left <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Did you try it yourself? Oh, I did, yes and it was lovely for the Christmas cakes Brian I grew up hearing great stories of rivalry between the townland I come from which is Turing Cahill and Galan, where my mother is from Of course, back in the day there was a great thing here in Guinea the tops of the parish and you had Touring Cahill and Galan as the main competitors and you had the village mm-hmm. and you had Lame but 
more often than not, it was touring Cahill and Galan in the final, and there was couple. And Galan always won. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, do you want to add to that? Well, I, I grew up listening to my mother and father debate that that topic at the kitchen table. My father was heavily involved with the touring Cahill side of it. There was a famous occasion where a great accordion player who was a friend of Johnny's and also a friend of my father's family at the, on the other side, Dennis Doody from Belly Desmond, came to adjudicate the tops of the parish. You could say it was unfair straight away because he had strong ties to Turing Cahill but also strong ties to Gillon. So I suppose the village crowd and the, the lame gang would have felt aggrieved that Dennis Doody was brought because, like I say, he was from Balnahulla, which is the neighbouring townland up from us in Turing Cahill and he was very much a friend of our family but also, through music, himself and Johnny were great friends. But my father reckons that the Gallon crowd got a hold of Dennis Doody before the competition <laughs> And definitely dosed him with a lot of alcohol. And he ended up giving the tops of the parish to Galan. Brian, Johnny had names for all the tunes. As the years go on, it's a great thing that he always put a name on his tunes because there's so many tunes in manuscripts and old collections that are gone on them, so there's no names in them. Whereas if you look at Johnny's book of music, he never left a tune without a name. He'd put some name in it. He'd call it after Galan, or he'd call it after Mullachavan, where we were, or he'd call it after local neighbours, or even just people that he might have associated playing with it. But what that does is it gives it an extra bit of meaning because when you hear Polk is called after Din Tarrant, he had a lot of tunes called after Din Tarrant, mm-hmm. people still ask Din, who's Din Tarrant or who was he? And then you tell this, his history. Yeah. He was a fiddle player from Belly Desmond and it probably keeps their story and memory alive mm-hmm. too. It also keeps the town lands in his locality alive. There's great place names around Guinea yeah. It adds to the story of the tune. What were you looking out at here? The Paps and a ring fort and lots of people came investigating it and as it was twas the legend was that a giant threw the stone from the paps and it landed there oh. it was a tree ringed fo- fairy fort yeah. and as children like we were told don't go don't go through the fort at night the fairies will be out Didn't and there was a lot of a lot of stories like fairy stories and I, the older people would never go in there at night i remember my father telling one night about they being out returning from some place and there was this big lump on the road and they said, oh, it is a fairy covered with a shawl. But it was a donkey that was <laughs> lying down. <laughs> These are two slides that Johnny called the Galan slides and they're on one of his most celebrated recordings. He recorded an album called The Trooper down in Bellavorna with Padre Orida and I suppose it is an album that's seen by many of his friends and you know his musical companions as one of his finest recordings simply because he played so well solo but also he put a lot of his more unusual and less known tunes on the album and these are two of those. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. I'll sing of Johnny Larry. Oh, Marking the centenary of the birth of one of the great sleeve local traditional box players, Johnny Leary. Today's programme was recorded on the 8th of June. Your stories on Johnny Leary, sleeve local music, are the places we're visiting and we'll use them in later programmes. Text 083 300 3300 or 4066 7123 We're now just inside the entrance of Cadbury's where Johnny worked for 34 years. Johnny didn't drive. How did he get from Gillan to here, Ellen? He was living at home in Mollicivan. When he started here first, and he used to cycle each way every how far, day. How far is that? Eight or nine miles. But he was very glad to get it. He absolutely loved. He thought it was a gift to this factory come here because prior to that, he walked above in Kildare with the bogs, the bog of Allen, as he used to call it. Conditions were so bad there, he said they were half-starved, and he said that they used to cut up the, the army blankets and put them into their Wellingtons for... Deed. So he was delighted to... He said they were the best company ever to work for. Oh. Two men were fired here. A man from Rock Negree and a man from Bullock. They were going dancing in some kind of a waltzing competition and they were each arguing about how the technique of this Velita waltz was called. <laughs> so my father was called upon to supply the music for them. They decided that they'd give a run through it. One of them put little cords on his hair to make little... to give the, the female look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my father while he was holding on to a bag I don't know what, what whatever was in the bag to, he started whistling for him and they were doing all the little manoeuvres twisting and sharp turns and yeah. that and next thing the manager arrived and he said boys collect your cards in the morning and I'm giving you a lash warning as well pointing <laughs> to my Your father mom. so he said he was looking <laughs> <laughs> the sound in the background is the traffic on the busy road between Rathmore and Mill Street maybe yeah. some sound from the factory you see when he well. started here Frank he was working three shifts the 8 to 4, 4 to 12 and 12 to 8, the night shift it was around the clock, you would come off in the morning from your night shift and you would have to go in at 4 that evening in the summer time when the milk was plentiful he used to hate the 4 to 12 in particular he used to be able to do his playing because at the time the, the bars were closed around half 11 or that way whereas the 4 to 12 you would know yeah, you were quality really, of life, yeah. but he had very good he used to work in a part of the factory called the evaporator and he had two other men there one of them was Tade Manny of Ratmore, the other man was Pat O'Callaghan up here as well from Clunes and they were fantastic to him and they'd always give him the swap if he needed a change but they understood his, his need for yeah. change of, of shift and that and they, yeah. they always obliged he was very lucky that way yeah. and there was one particular night that he was up all night, they were up playing in, he was playing a band sometimes and they were playing up the country somewhere and he was dropped off here in the morning and he still had his tuxedo and bow tie on when he arrived in and didn't even think about it he was obviously after maybe snoozing in the bus yeah. on his way and when he came in here the first one he said you better lose that tie before we start <laughs> <laughs> lots of memories and he ended up then being in, working in the store which was a day job and that was absolutely ideal for yeah. him because he had the regular 84 hours because there were so many from Golan and beyond the, the, the local areas there was always somebody to give him a, a lift to work but if they were late 
he would not appreciate it. He always had to be clocking in for 10 to 8 for oh, the yeah. 8 o'clock shift. Everything time. had to be on. Yeah, punctuality was a big thing with him because he used to be shouting us to get up for school as well. And we knew we used to take the last minute and we'd even reach out and open the drawer and close the pretending we were up before <laughs> he'd be gone out. <laughs> <laughs> there were always sweets in the house in Gillan. He'd bring home the, what they were, were the rejects. He'd bring us home chocolate every that's how we all got the sweet tooth I suppose teeth yeah. <laughs> he'd bring home the especially do you remember the barrels that used to be in the roses the lime flavoured half barrels they used to come all the time <laughs> especially Saturday mornings for our weekend like he'd have we'd, did you bring sweets and we'd be going out into his bag to collect the routine with the dinner down in Ratmore was very simple when Lil my grandmother was back recovering from her hip operation myself and my first cousin spent a lot of time my first cousin Daniel was there all the time and there was a couple of weeks we were down there together then with Johnny I suppose to keep him company and while Lil was recovering with Ellen back in Killarney mm-hmm. it was bacon and cabbage every day for the dinner I always remember it and we never got sick of it either which was amazing I remember the cold sausages then he'd have up on the stove yeah. <laughs> the leftover sausages and we used to think they were lovely too Cadbury's is the economic life of this area if it weren't for Cadbury's Johnny would probably have emigrated He'd have no choice. Like, he started off when he was 12, working for a farmer very close to where he lived in Molokie Van. And then he moved over. That's how he met my mother. He moved over to Galan Cross to another farmer. While he was there, then, you see, he used to play in Guinea Gwilla. And I think it was from that then that he went working to Kildare. And so this was a, a gift mm-hmm. for him. He mm-hmm. did a stint working in the county council, but there mustn't have been work there. You were telling the story earlier of... of uh your mother in America and, and your father here and for a while it looked as if your father might have gone out at that stage yeah he planned to go but it, it never came about after I don't know did he lose his nerve about it or did, did my mother's heart wouldn't in staying in America either so um, but you had an my aunt, aunt, a came, yeah my grand aunt whom my mother went over to came home and pleaded her case with my grandfather and said to him who told you who to marry he changed him completely and it was the best thing ever for him they got on very well they lived in the same house in for years until he died and uh, they, they, they were the best of friends it was only an idea while Johnny was working here Ellen he, he had a nickname they used to call him Kieran. I think it was one of the one of the managers used to call him that he was um, Florio Mahoney who was originally I think from Curra he called him Kieran because of all the recordings he used to do with Kieran McMahona <laughs> and everyone knew who they were talking about when they say Kieran the whole position of music I mean the commercial opportunities weren't what they are now no but as Ella mentioned Kieran McMahona and earlier she mentioned Seamus Innes what really put Steve Lucre on the map apart from the great musicians was the fact that these great collectors were drawn to the and saw the worth of the music of the area I think Seamus Innes was even a, a personal friend of Padraig O'Keefe who could have taught Johnny and Dennis Murphy and, and yeah. the rest of them but they saw the worth in it and I think as well maybe it can get misrepresented because you know nowadays it can be just seen as the land of polkas and slides which it is and it's very much something to be proud of and Johnny was very proud of the polkas and slides but the variety of repertoire as well I think sometimes maybe gets undersold because and I'm sure many musician friends of Johnny's would, would testify to this there was always a variety in all his recordings and even if you get cassette tapes of his sessions there's jigs, reels, hornpipes, barn dances, even a few waltzes thrown in if he was playing in Otnagree. 
polka slides but there was always variety and I suppose the big thing he had was the ability to retain all that material yeah. and of course was vital to him in that as well because when Johnny was moving on you were able to remind him of tunes and versions of tunes I might only have a few notes of a certain tune but would just back off for him then what are we going to play this time? We were just thinking of it there, speaking of you know the variety of repertoire, just to, to keep it fresh. We played a jig and we played a couple of slides, so he also had lovely hornpipes. So these are two fairly renowned Steve Lucre hornpipes at this stage that Dennis Murphy would have recorded with his sister Julia Cronin's and Callahan's. <laughs> Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly, Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. I'll sing of Johnny Larry, oh, we knew and love so well. Stories and music marking the centenary of the birth of, of master traditional box player uh, Johnny Larry. We're now in a place where Johnny played on Sunday evenings. We're in Scatter Glen in Lions Bar where Trina Vaughan welcomed us in. We're joined by a man of many parts, anything that is good for Main Valley and Castle Island, all of North East Kerry, uh, John Reedy. Ellen, playing with Johnny here in Scart on Sunday nights. His Sunday nights here were before I started playing because he started in playing in Knock the Green in 1964. So his Sunday nights would have been prior to that mm-hmm. so I wouldn't have been out and about playing at the time but he had great times here and he used to often come here Saturday nights even after that because he was very friendly with the owner who was Jack Lyons and his wife Kathleen where we're sitting now I think was the kitchen at the time and there was a, a range there and it was such a lovely cosy place for music sessions 
Dennis Murphy used to come and Mikey Duggan who lived down the road and a lot of the visitors from Dublin would come here to, to meet Padraig Keefe as well um, Seamus Innes often came um, Ronnie Drew used to come now and again wasn't he married to somebody from around Cora yeah. Woman mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of different musicians used to come and then there used to be a great flag you all here in was it the August bank holiday the Shkad flag used to be on I used to play for the dancing with Mikey Duggan we, had two, we were up in two lorries for the step dancers and my father would man one of them and myself and Mikey Duggan would do the other one then there would be a session afterwards in the we'd get tea and all the the, the yeah. hospitality was yeah. absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. and we'd be playing all day and the, the tempers would fray towards the end of it especially if there was some mammies who were kind of particular about the pace of the music yeah. and like <laughs> they'd start waving them down to slow yeah. down so they were playing too fast like yeah. and all they wanted to all they wanted to see was to come here for their session yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it could get a bit tetchy at times <laughs> but they'd get over it again the most famous starting point when it comes to Scartaglin and Johnny was the fact that it was the first place he was recorded. The first known recording of Johnny was done here in Despair in 1949 with Dennis Murphy. Being influenced strongly by Johnny, those were recordings that I, I listened to quite a lot. They recorded five tracks that day and Ellen mentioned earlier Seamus Innes was working with BBC. He was the man that recorded those tracks. The duet he had with Dennis were so tight that you'd almost think it was two fiddles playing. But that was again down to Padraig's influence because he had advised Johnny to play the C sharp D style and no bass buttons, which would be very unusual now because you know most accordion players will use their left hand and their right hand. Yeah. Whereas Padraig felt that by using the left hand you might dry, drown out the fiddle player. And in order to get that sweet, kind of tight duet, it's better to stick to the right hand here perfect that kind of and uh, blend in with the fiddle recently RTE brought out a a collection of music that had been recorded down through the years and two of those tracks featured John Johnny Leary was was a man to help in any way he could well we found that Mike Kinney when we were starting out with the Patrick O'Keefe Festival in Castle Island in 1993 we were high on inspiration and confidence but we were very low on solid good advice Mm -hmm. so Mike contacted Johnny O'Leary and Dennis McMahon and we met them. Johnny and Dennis came in and we were talking for about an hour or so. We got great advice from them. As both you and, and Brian have been saying, here are the ghosts of so many great traditional musicians. Willie Clancy came here. That's where my father met him. He came to meet Padre Keefe. Yeah. And Willie wanted to, um, a tune and he asked Padre to write it down for him. And so Padre just put his piece of paper up in the counter and jotted down the tune and Willie took out his tin whistle from the inside of his coat and played the tune. Ivor Brown was a regular visitor. That's where he used to come to because he was very interested in the Schlieve music. Yeah. And he loved listening to Arthur O'Keefe from Lichine singing as well. Arthur had a, he had a very funny way of pronouncing words and that and he was highly entertaining yeah. for that. Yeah. And Art actually died in St. Columban and I, there was a, a neighbour of his her father used to be one of my father's regular chauffeurs back in and she met Art inside in his older years and she said well Art how are you liking this place and he said it is alright but who'd want to be young for it <laughs> <laughs> he didn't approve of being put out of the bed so well in the morning that <laughs> It's a very special village and what always will be very special in yeah. Slave Lucre folklore. I remember even my very first time coming to the Heritage Centre. It was to a polka and slide workshop from Billy Clifford. 
and of course Billy is son of the legendary Julia Clifford and Dennis Murphy was his uncle so straight away it was a, a great start and there was actually two workshops the same weekend Billy was doing a polka and slide and then there was individual instrument classes and Paddy O'Connor was doing the button accordion one mm. and I wouldn't have known Paddy at all at that stage I was just maybe after starting playing you get to know the influence Johnny had on him and you, it it kicks off a whole relationship then with people in more recent times we would have come here a lot in the aftermath of the Handed Down series that PJ Tehan runs yeah. Katrina O'Connor here yeah. behind the bar her dad Dan Jeremiah another pupil of Padraig O'Keefe he sat down and tried his best to teach you a few polkas or slides that he would have got from Padraig it was all about passing on the music and indeed I suppose all that generation of musicians from Schneev Lucre were all seen as that type of Does of that people. happen anymore? Maybe the days of seeing someone maybe of in their 70s, 80s in an old school traditional session and sitting down to play with a 9 or 10 year old it's probably happening less just due to the fact that there uh, there isn't as many what we'd have said old style traditional sessions a lot of the sessions now might be mic'd up Memorial in Scarlet to Paddy O'Keefe, Sar Vashter Kjol, Glanton, Cordel, 1906 to 1963, last of the fiddle masters of Steve Lokra, and a plaque at Glanton Cross, uh, Paddy O'Keefe, 1887 to 1963, master of traditional music, gifted performer, arranger, and teacher, Nivegalehena on Rish, and above and below the music notation in the format uh, Paddy had devised for himself, and of course, the Padraig O'Keefe Festival in Castle Island. Diane Hamilton, an American folk music collector and Irish traditional music collector, came here with Liam Clancy in 1955, I think, and it was them that took that photograph of Patrick with them. With the medium glass. Oh, yes. And, 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 uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, yeah. It was Liam Clancy took that photograph. They had, the they had a big search for him in Castle Island and they did a few of the pubs and someone said, try Scart. And they found him here. <laughs> Ellen, Patrick O'Keefe used to write tunes for your father. He had his own method for writing for the fiddle, where he'd um, four lines for the four strings of the fiddle, and he'd use figures in for which fingers you put on. But for the accordion, then you see, it was figures again with which button says press button three, and for the press when you put the accordion in for press, he used to put like what's in in French like the circumflex, and if it was to come out in, there'd be a, as my father said, there was a dash over it. Mm-hmm. Dots and dashes is what he used to say. <laughs> <laughs> there was another great story about Padraig. It was a cold night that he was leaving this bar here, and Mrs. Lyons, feeling sorry for him facing the road back to Glontorn, and the roads were in glass, she gave him a bottle of whiskey for the for the road home oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he put it under his jacket I think yeah. and made for Glanton but anyway with the roads being in ice he slipped and he went upside down on the road and as he was lying down on the cold road he felt something trickle down his body and he said Jesus Christ I hope it's blood <laughs> <laughs> This morning Tom Fleming whose bar reopened on the night we were recording in Scott Glen on the, the 8th of June Tom said to me Johnny Larry had a massive amount of old music. He was the custodian of old music. Particular thanks to Trina Vaughan for welcoming us here to Lions in Scarlet So, Brian, what are we going to have here? Well, I suppose going back to the first story about it being the, the, the bar that Dennis and Johnny recorded way back in 1949, two of the tunes they played that day are known now as the Scarlet Glen Polkas. So we'll try those. <laughs> 
Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee The Saturday Supplement With Frank Lewis On Radio Kerry Welcome back In this centenary month of his birth In June the 6th, 1923 We're travelling to places Associated with master traditional box player Johnny Leary Guided by his daughter Ellen Healy And grandson Brian O'Leary programme is recorded on, on June the 8th and the 9th. Let me have your story of Johnny Schlieve Locra and its music. Write Frank Lewis Mangerton Road, Mokris Killarney. Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. Text 083 300 3300 or phone 066 7123 Now at, I suppose, the gateway to Schlieve Locra, to a place to meet traditional musicians and to talk about music and football. Timmy O'Brien's pub in College Street in Killarney. Special thanks to Alan Breen for facilitating us. We're joined by master traditional concertina player Michelle O'Sullivan, singers Christy Cronin and Pat O'Sullivan, and the author of Stone Mad for Music, the Steve Lucre story, at Donald Hickey. But to start us off, Seamus McMahon's Lament for Johnny Leary, sung by, by Christy and Pat. Oh, Johnny, Johnny, Larry, when I heard that you were gone, I turned my face a moment far to hide the tears that sprang. Your name, your mirth and laughter, lovely music and good cheer. And those mighty slides and polkas Ring forever in our ears Schlevokra is a wondrous place Of lore and song renowned Of bards and poets and fiddlers' names In history's page are found Of Julia Dennis Murphy And Fem Padraig Ufertel but I'll sing of Johnny Larry, oh, we knew and loved so well. I see you in Dan Connell's, Dennis Murphy at your side. The box and fiddle blending, heart and rhythm, style and pride. And the cheering and the wheeling as the dancers take the floor. And the spirit of Shivlokra fills our hearts to overflow. Dennis died and he was mourned like a king in days gone by. Only you could fill the banner, kept Shivlokra's banner high. And the music and the laughter and the joy you gave so free. 
Give us heart in times of worry and live on in memory. You are given the gift of music, you give back a hundredfold. And the lovely tunes you left us in tradition proud we hold. For score years the good Lord gave you and you played right to the end. God be with you, Johnny Larry. I'm so proud you called me friend. Michelle, Johnny Larry and Jimmy O'Brien's. I would have played with Johnny here in his latter years, right up to his final days, really. He was still playing great music. Killarney Town is bustling, busy centre of commercial activity. Donald, Jimmy O'Brien's pub was, was an oasis. This town is not noted as a venue for Irish music and Jimmy O'Brien came in at a very good time in the early 60s and when things were starting to pick up a bit again and there was a, a renewal of interest in Irish music and firstly he provided a venue for musicians where they were firstly very welcome and where they could play at any hour they come in at. Informal, impromptu sessions. You just played with whoever sat down beside you. And there was a lovely informality about all that and a great sense of enjoyment. Now, Jimmy himself was steeped in the history and the the lore and the music of Sleeve Lucre. And he he was a very fine singer he had, he had an awful of old songs that he got from his uncle Patty Coakley and he could sing, say, the Groves of Clarine or Sweet I Had or any of those songs. I often heard him here yeah, sing yeah. and so he was really part of it. He right. didn't have to learn anything and he, be- he, he became an, an integral part of the whole thing. Yeah. Another very important point about this bar is that it became an important place for broadcasters, especially Mark Mahuna. And he became a very close personal friend of Jimmy O'Brien's. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy was, in a way, a link between McMahona and the musicians. And he helped organise recording sessions for Kiran McMahona. And not alone were they played inside here, but he took him out to the homes of the musicians in different places where he recorded. So he was a very significant person in the whole music scene at that time. Brian? Any time I used to come into the town of Killarney as a young lad, if my mother was in doing the shopping... I'd always make my way up to this bar and just sit down with Jimmy and talk to him. There was always something to take the local songs he had. The last time I visited Jimmy in the nursing home, he sang me a song called The Maid from Williamstown, which was an old, we'll say a first cousin maybe, of the well-known song Sweet King Williamstown. He remembered all the lyrics of it. We talk about the great brain that Johnny had, because he was deadly with remembering his repertoire of tunes. Jimmy Bryan was like that with his songs. It was very significant at the time and it kind of coincides in a way with Jimmy O'Brien's entry into the pub trade in 1960 or 61 in that RTE had been using outside broadcasting units. They started in the late 40s and they enabled broadcasters like Ennis and McMahona and O'Conlone to record musicians in their own homes, yeah. in, the, in pubs, anywhere and it really enhanced the whole operation and it enabled the very easy transmission of Irish music and radio because prior to that time they were using very basic recording equipment and or else in studios and I think our three musicians here would agree with me when I say that a traditional musician is most comfortable either at home sitting down by the fire or in a pub like Jimmy O'Brien's Brian what would you say you learned here in Jimmy O'Brien's? I learned a lot about 
you could say, first of all, my own family history. I was made very aware of the fact that my great-granduncle Dan Leary would have played here on a regular basis with Jimmy Dyle. A lot was picked up down through the years. I remember one of Johnny's final television recordings was done for a nationwide programme in Jimmy O'Brien's bar and we were taken out of school early so that was a big day. We kind of knew Johnny was sick and Jimmy died I think played with him the same day and, and Ellen and Michelle probably I think that was a special occasion and then I suppose when I started playing myself the many sessions I had in here Michelle touched on something there about you know the two Jimmys Jimmy O'Brien and Jimmy Dial. when we'd come across here playing there was always banter, definitely, between the two. And they had, of course, a great, I suppose, a bet with each other about who'd die first. And the deal was that if Jimmy O'Brien died first, Jimmy died would have to play Mary, she went to Banan at his grave. And then if it was vice versa, Jimmy O'Brien would sing it at Jimmy Dial's grave. But, of course, Jimmy Dial followed through anyway, and he did play the waltz version of Mary, she went to Banan at Jimmy O'Brien's grave the day he was buried. And to try and recreate the atmosphere, the kind of things that happened then, what are you going to play? You, you have your, your accordion out there, and Michelle has the concertina, and uh, yeah, Ellen has the, 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 the uh, tin whistle. We, we touched on an album briefly yesterday, the Trooper album, one of Johnny's most famous solo recordings, and it, these are two slides from that. The Quarry Cross. <laughs> Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly, Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. I'll sing of Johnny Larry, 
On this journey, marking the centenary of the birth of Johnny Leary on the 6th of June 2023, we're now in Gennigwilla outside Teddy Willie's Hall. Donald Hickey, how did Johnny come to play in the hall for the first time? The hall used local musicians all the time, among them, you know, Dennis Murphy and a man called Mick Dash O'Mahony played regularly with Dennis for dances here in this hall. But one night, Mick was unable to fulfil the engagement and they looked around for a musician and they got a 13-year-old young fella from Molly Kivan called Johnny Leary. And that was important because it was his first time playing with Dennis Murphy at a dance and it was the start of a partnership that lasted for over 40 years. The first time they were recorded together was in 1947 <clears throat> in Dennis's house which is less than two miles from here in, Lich- in, in Lichine. Seamus Innes was the man doing the recording for Radio Aaron at the time and they were inside in the kitchen and old Bill the Waver who was Dennis Murphy's father was anxious to join in because he was a well-known musician too and he reached behind a curtain and he found a concert flute and he pulled out the concert flute and showed it to one and all and the thing about the concert flute was it was covered in cobwebs and Seamus Innes said no you, you'll have to wave off those cobwebs because you won't be able to play it if they're full of cobwebs and Bill insisted no he said the music is going to be an awful lot sweeter for the cobwebs and I'm going to play with the cobwebs and he did and the music was a lot sweeter <laughs> <laughs> Ellen could it be said that if it weren't for Teddy Willie's Hall you might never have been my mother used to come here to meet my father and it was three pennies to get in and she wouldn't always have the money and then it went up to sixpence which went from bad to worse and uh, if she couldn't afford it he'd come off the stage and come out and give her the money to get into the hall and she was being watched carefully then in case she'd be delayed going home (laughs) but of course they they started courting when she was very young yes she was only about 13 I'd say 14 maybe my father worked for a farmer in Galon at Galon Cross which is about half a mile back the road not even and uh, that's how they met first the romance blossomed for a lot of years Did, <laughs> before went from there, eventually went there. <laughs> Teddy Willie's Hall opened in 1927 and continued until the early 1980s Michelle Johnny was playing for set dancing from that young age yeah. like for decades really and I suppose I think his music was very much intertwined with the dancing mm-hmm. I remember him saying he loved playing for good dancers that it lifted him and you know that pulse in his music it probably came from years and years of playing for set dancing Brian Teddy Willie's Hall was closed before you were born. Donald just mentioned McDash Mahoney couldn't fulfil an engagement. A man came into the hall and as Johnny worded it, hit Mick a peg of a fish and broke a couple of teeth in his mouth and out of embarrassment then Mick pulled four or five teeth and went away to America and he said that's how I started playing with Dennis Murphy. The owner of the hall, known on as Teddy Willie. He was O'Connor and he was, a, he was a farmer. And he built the hall here, a corrugated iron structure, which is still stands quite strongly to this day, almost 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a dapper little man. I remember him quite well from growing up around the village. He was a gentleman. He had a great welcome for all the dancers. And he'd stand at the door and he would shake hands to each person entering the hall, welcome them personally. Better still, he'd stand in the hall during the dance, halfway through the dance, and he'd ask the local boys to dance to the strange girls. <laughs> now, the strange girls might be from the next parish, but they would be strange that time because people didn't travel around that much. <laughs> Teddy wasn't merely concerned that the girls would go home disappointed. Yeah. He wanted to make sure they came back again. 
Ellen, going way back, this was the first place Dennis Murphy, the waiver, and, and Johnny played together to form the, the most significant musical partnership of, of your father's life. Long years, and they always had a bass when he was playing here. That was their bass. But they used to go to Cahill's and Rat Moore together, or if they were rehearsing for um, a gig in RT, they'd go to Belly Desmond, where they'd get a nice quiet pub, so that they could... Uh, just decide what tunes there wasn't too much practicing now put into it but um, they decide what to play in. Yeah. and then when this place was declining do you remember the, the big show bells were starting to come and I remember there was a Stephen Garvey who was coming to Ratmore and of course again T.A.D. Willie was getting very concerned about that the crowd would go to Ratmore and there was a meeting below at the house you know, what were they going to do and they said uh, I wonder should we try Stephen Garvey as well Teddy said because I won't do that because I'll tell you something now they'd be only myself and Stephen I'd say <laughs> <laughs> producing 21 Sleeve Lucre journals over 42 years writing stone mad for music the Sleeve Lucre stories so much writing so much about Sleeve Lucre what, what motivates you Donald? Well, I suppose the savage loves his native shore, you know, and uh, it's just you grow up in all this in, in, in this environment, and I think what really att- att- attracts me anyway is the people and the personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Johnny O'Leary and Dennis the Waver, as we used to know him, and all these great Paddy Cronin, the Cronin mm-hmm. family of Ray and so many personalities. I tell the story to the people that yeah. I knew and that uh, that I researched so I obviously didn't know a lot of the people but you just it's just I think I think it's only natural to be interested in your own place and you carry it as far as you can and that's it yeah Yeah. and just on about Guinea Gwilla Paddy Cronin there as Donald mentioned maybe three weeks before he passed away he came into us in a session in Killarney in the Grand and Paddy was known for coming out with sometimes controversial comments but one comment that stuck with me that he said and I do believe he meant it he said no place in Ireland produced more musicians than Guinea Gwilla and he was specific about Guinea Gwilla and he started listing off he said if you compare it even to strongholds such as Sligo where you had Coleman and Morrison Guinea Gwilla produced more musicians that went on to record commercially if you think about it with Dennis Murphy his sister Jula Clifford her husband John Clifford their son Billy Clifford that's all one family then you had Johnny O'Leary and his uncle Dan Leary you had the Dials Jimmy Dial then you had Johnny Cronin and his brother Paddy Cronin so there was a wealth of musicians all from Guinea Gwilla that went on and forged huge music careers Ellen your father Johnny and Patrick O'Keefe talking about John Clifford near here many years ago my father always talked very highly of John Clifford that he was the best accordion player he ever heard and apparently he devised his own style where he'd play on the outside row as opposed to what Brian does the inside crossing out he'd play on the outside crossing in now he'd great long fingers for playing uh, like as my father said they were like knitting needles (laughs) 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 and he said that there was one night they were playing just up here in one of the houses up near the quarry cross for a house dance and he said he stood outside and Dennis Murphy happened to be beside him and he said and it must have been Jula and Patrick that were playing inside with John Clifford and Dennis Murphy said what do you think of that? He said I think they're in the fairies that was so yes. wonderful the music the yeah, sound yeah, and yeah. The, the blending Joe Bork as you know was the great uh, Galway accordion player who had a, his own style of BC accordion playing and Paddy O'Brien of Tipperary also had that style but my father always kept telling Joe Burke about John Clifford and Joe Burke would say to him uh, was he really that good was Clifford really that good 
You're lucky he's dead from you, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so have we a piece of music to bring Teddy Willie's Hall to life again? These are definitely slides that would have been played a lot in this hall. The first is called The Star Above the Garter and of course that great album by Dennis Murphy and Julia Clifford was titled The Star Above the Garter and the slide they put with it then was called The Lachine Slide and Lachine is a townland which isn't too far away from here either. Great music. And after all that, we're off to knock the green. (laughs) The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. I'll sing of Johnny Larry. Oh, we knew and loved. On this Johnny Larry's centenary journey to the places where he played programme recorded on on June the 9th, stories on Johnny or Steve Lucre music. Send to Frank Lewis, Gillan Mangerton Road, Muckers Killarney, or email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. And we'll use them on future programmes. We're now uh, just beside the Fair Green in Knocknagree, across the well, down the way from Dan Connell's pub, where Johnny played on Sundays and, and Friday nights uh, for over 40 years. Donald Hickey, how, how did Johnny come to play in O'Connell's? Dan was mad for sets as they say he was a great dancer himself and he was really into set dancing and actually he claimed that the set dancing revival in Ireland started in his pub and from the very start it started on St Stephen's night 1965 Johnny Leary and Dennis Murphy played and the partnership lasted until 1974 when Dennis died unexpectedly Johnny continued for years and years after until the pub closed the pub went on for about 40 or just over 40 years yeah. and Johnny was was a central to the was, he was central to the whole thing yeah. and it was primarily a dancing pub Paul Kissets not just to play music but to dance and as we said earlier Johnny loved to play music 
for dancers and he was central to the whole thing and he was the big attraction really he was the draw Ellen you say the music here was better than anywhere else that's the personal opinion maybe a bit biased as well the music was absolutely beautiful the better the dancers the better they played I should have said we're just beside the centre of the, the fair green and there's this fantastic centre place with beautiful area laid out for performance or for and tables and a lovely water feature and very interesting reproduction of uh, leaves Michelle O'Connell's knocked a grief. If I was asked to, to reflect on what were the best sessions I was ever at, I'd say I would say that there were nights in Knocknagree. Why was that? What was it about them? Johnny was probably the, the, the key, really. He was the anchor man, and he was such an outstanding musician. He lifted everyone when he played. Yeah. Like on Friday nights, we, I love Friday nights in particular because Johnny stayed at the front playing the session. Yeah. On Sunday night, he would play for a part of the session and then go back yeah. to the back to, to play for dancers. But when Johnny left the session, he dropped a level. Dan O'Connell himself was a remarkable character and he spent his night out on the floor literally dragging people out to dance. He didn't care how well they were able to dance or not and he worked on the basis that you should never sacrifice enjoyment for perfection. He wanted people yeah. dancing regardless of their ability, got them out on the yeah. floor and he, that, he created a wonderful atmosphere in the place. Yeah. And there was one man, Mick Moynan, the Dan... Dan imposed somebody to dance with and she wasn't really a great dancer at all and after the first part of the set Mick said do you know I think we might give up for a while I know she said you're doing fine stay together <laughs> <laughs> Brian I've been following up on that point your grandfather Johnny Leary's life revolved around music and yet as far as he was concerned life was more important than music myself and my first cousin would be carried down to the session we'd be then out around the back ourselves playing we wouldn't be paying too much heed to the music when we'd get sick of messing around ourselves we'd come in and plague him and he might be in the middle of a tune but he'd drop the box and take us down to the chipper it's great to have the memories of being in the bar even though I didn't play music when I was in the bar it's funny when I started playing the sound of his music particularly him out the back playing for dancers it was as if it all made sense to me he made an album in conjunction with his book of music which was recorded live in Dan Connell's and I suppose for me the sound of that album sums up that sound of my experience in Dan Connell's bar The night Dennis Murphy died you have a very graphic memory of I remember the night he came in that particular night he came in from Dan Connell's and he said this was one of the best nights we ever had Dennis was in great form and he had his friend a neighbour Art O'Keefe with him and they even sat down on the steps outside the bar and played Napoleon's March and a few more of those tunes that he was I said it was, it was late like past, well past closing time because they sat outside and played after closing time yeah. in the pub yeah. and uh, next thing they, they were, like Dennis did have angina like, but the, the, the death was so sudden and he was only 62 or 3 when he, when he died and my father said he, his heart nearly stopped when he heard it so he was he was playing there up playing to the early there hours. and went to home and wasn't long in bed when he complained of a chest pain and died. After your father died on the 9th of February 2004, why did you stop playing music? All my time playing was associated with him and the relaxed type of sessions weren't there. Brian, in complete contrast, it was after your grandfather's death that you, you started playing. Because sometimes it takes something like that to happen for it to really hit true. I suppose it was the day of his funeral mass actually that I said it's my mother first. It was the first time I had experienced a major death in the family and it just hit me massively and out of that shock came this wanting to carry on the traditional 
we were lucky in the national school I went to in Turing Cattle that Henry Cronin used to come teaching the following week after Johnny Zett had carried down in the accordion and took to it very much. The big breakthrough for me was Jimmy Dial. Once I had got a few tunes from Henry and then gone down to Guinea Gwilla to Nicky McAuliffe, the great Nicky McAuliffe, I was carried in then to Jimmy's session on the Sunday afternoon. He made a beeline and wanted to know was I playing music and nothing would do him only for me to go over and play a tune in his box the strap was way too big for me but he tied it around me and I had to play a tune the next week he insisted on I bringing in my own accordion and joining the session and he was the kind of man where similar to Johnny Johnny was very good with youngsters too it didn't matter if you had one tune I'd only be a handful of tunes at the time he would keep playing those tunes with you and then from going to that session I developed my ear for music and then bringing that back to Johnny, that's where I had a major breakthrough because when I was listening into Johnny's recordings and getting my head around his music and his style, the fact that I wasn't relying on Nicky anymore to write out all the tunes for me, I think you can get closer into his style yeah. because you can really hone in on some of the characteristics that he used to because he had an extremely recognisable style but a, a style that I think no one else has ever copied yeah. because it was so interlinked with the fiddle playing of the area. They talk about Johnny's great relationship with Dennis Murphy and that was a great duet. But I said the other great duet, I suppose, in Johnny's life was with his daughter Ellen. Ellen played with Johnny. She took up, really, playing with Johnny when, when Dennis Murphy died. Ellen is a very understated musician, but she is has a huge repertoire of all Johnny's tunes and an unbelievable head for remembering them. And even in Johnny's later years, when Johnny wasn't well and wasn't quite maybe as sharp as he was in his earlier days, Ellen was always there reminding him of the tunes. You know, even on his deathbed, she was, she was dialing into his ear. Johnny was rock solid. I always said that. You could depend your life on Johnny Leary. And there were three aspects of that. He's, he was a family man, number one. And um, I saw that in his relationship with Ellen and, and, and her son, Daniel, who was a great accordion player as well, but would be shy about coming forward to play. And Daniel used to sit next to Johnny, practically under his arm, everywhere. Up in, and he'd sit for the week up in Willie Clancy, under J- Johnny's arm. And, like, he, he, and Johnny just loved him to bits, you know? And, and, and to watch that relationship, that was, that, that was first and foremost family. Second was music. His whole life was music. He never stopped thinking about music. He, he, it was his whole being. He was constantly thinking of music, I think, really. And the third was football. <laughs> I, he was a passionate Kerry man. Have we a piece of music to capture all that? Yeah, we're going to play two polkas. So these two polkas are going back to that album I mentioned earlier that he recorded here in Notnagree. And he was playing these for, for dancing. But I suppose it's important to say that the first tune is the one and only tune that he ever composed himself and he called it the Knocknagree Polka and then the, the second tune is called John Collins's Fancy <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Fantastic. Lovely. And finally to Bally Desmond. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. I'll sing of Johnny Larry. Oh, Marking the centenary of the birth in June 1923 of master traditional box player Johnny Leary, now in Ballydesmond, former King Williamstown, we're around the corner from the memorial to Johnny's first teacher, carved on the monument in memory of Tom Billy Murphy, Glenn Collins, Ballydesmond, traditional music teacher and storyteller, born 1875, died 1943. Music, the language of paradise and will dance like the waves of the sea. We're also joined by Johnny's son-in-law, Bertie O'Leary. In your book, Stone Mad for Music, The Shreve Lucre Story, you devoted a chapter to Tom Billy. Donald... He travelled on a donkey, he was blind. He had a, quite a distinct brand of, mu- of, of music and he handed that on with great integrity and authenticity. To this day, a lot of the tunes have his name and they're played regularly all the time. Mm-hmm. And he got his music from an older musician who also went around on the donkey, Tygeen Anassal, Tyg Buckley, yeah. who came from the Nocknagree side. Tom, unfortunately, was not recorded. Ellen, you grew up with stories of, of Tom Biddy, like how he managed when he broke a string. How he used to reposition a string was he used to use his tongue to, to feel where the hole was to, put, to tread the, the string through it. And he'd always then, as well, if he if he needed his to smoke a pipe, and he'd always find some young lady to light his pipe for him, and he'd give him the shelter of his coat, and <laughs> they'd go into the the to light his <laughs> pipe. <laughs> Michelle, my experience with Tom Billy would would be through Molly Myers, who was a pupil of Tom Billy's, and she lived in Calais and Farn Four, and uh, Tom Billy used to call frequently to her house. She was a superb player, and the recordings of her, you, like her her music is very different to, to what you know to Dennis Murphy and Patrick O'Keefe. She didn't have any other influences in her music and that she didn't play out. Mm. Brown Dumbernock found her very interesting. He went and met her and from notes and that he made on his meeting with her, he said it was like meeting Tom Billy first hand and Tygeen and Ossel second hand. He felt it was an older strain of music. Yeah. She kept all her notebooks from Tom Billy and that was the only music she played. She handed in all her notebooks to the National Music Traditional Archive and Brandon Bernock remarked that it was the greatest collection of music ever handed in by a, a, a woman musician to the archives. Your father-in-law, spending a day in the bog with him. Johnny would have been in the bog with me a lot in the 1980s on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. He was an early riser. He always said to me, I never lost a day's work because of playing music. He was never late for work in Fred Cadbury's in the many years he was there. He would have been a great man for with me in the bog in 1980 and the 80s because my father passed away rather suddenly. Nancy Polka sat down Nocknagree to my wife Maureen. And Johnny kind of took me under the way, under under his wing quite a lot that time because I was a young man and I, I suppose I was traumatised with the death of my father and he, he, he helped me an awful lot. Going through the village of Belly Desmond, every fella stopped for a pint, going home in the evening, thirsty work. And Johnny always looked forward to going to Dan Murphy's bar that Johnny frequented quite a lot and played on the Thursday night, going home from the bog on a Saturday evening at five o'clock. You can imagine every fella with Wellingtons on and they're having a, a few pints after the day. But we went in one particular Saturday evening and they said, God, Johnny, they said, into the pity that we hadn't a accordion to play a few tunes. And as this so happened, 
his accordion was in the boot of my car so I said we have the accordion he'll, he'll play a few tunes for you so I brought it in and he started playing and fellas started singing and getting merrier as the time went on and I suppose the unique thing was that he had eight men with Wellingtons dancing a polka set <laughs> within an hour <laughs> Brian your, your grandfather's legacy it was a great thing that Johnny put a name on it, all his tunes because he kept more than just the tune alive. He kept all his musical comrades alive. And all these old musicians that he would have learned his music from, including Tom Billy, but also many more maybe unsung heroes from the from the area. Tinky Belly Desmond alone, you had uh, Michelle mentioned Molly Myers, but there was Jack Connell as well, Din Tarrant, moving to Guinea you had Con Tygo, you had Ted Lowe none of these musicians they would have been forgotten about mm. had it not been for Johnny mentioning them in interviews and recognising them as an influence on him and recognising that they passed the music on to him his biggest legacy is the music he provided and I think the style he left I think it's a style that even in hundreds of years there'll be people still mesmerised by it mm. because we live in a, in a world where you can go onto YouTube and you can study musicians and copy their style yet with Johnny I still think his style was just so unique that there will be it could be someone from Spain or the States and they'll be still mesmerised because they'll be trying to figure out what he's doing and they'll probably fail just because it was so unique Donald what do you think the most important legacy Johnny has left us? I, I suppose it's the music that he has passed on it's like so many other famous traditional Players that it's that's their re- in my view anyway that's their legacy that it's it's a huge part of our heritage not, not alone the Schlieve Luca heritage but national heritage yeah and as Brian was saying there it'd probably be played in a hundred years from now and it'll be a template for a lot of young musicians especially the, the Schlieve Lucre musicians on the way and there are loads of young young well trained musicians coming on Ellen how many tunes do you have in your head how many of Johnny's tunes do you have. I, I have no idea. I never counted, frankly. Yeah, but there are hundreds. There are, yeah. Hundreds, are. up to a thousand? Oh, I'd say so, yeah. That yeah, you have in are. your head? Well, I don't know, I could have yeah. forgotten some of them now, all right. Yeah. But I, I just thought of a story there, one which I thought was quite funny. You know, the, when, when Dorn was talking about he playing in the halls, he used to play in Ballantaurig Hall, Tourmore Hall, Guinea of course. But he used to tell a story about Ballantaurig in particular because... Um, there was two musicians there I know she was Mary and, and I can't think it's the name of the husband but they used to play up on the stage and he used to play with them and at the time of course everything was scarce and clothes were scarce and there was um, the women had these kind of tops made for themselves which were lovely from the front but then when they turned their back there was bags must be returned <laughs> <laughs> The flower bags recycled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you think your, your, your father's most important legacy is? My thinking is the fun he was. Yeah. Even as a child growing up, the fun uh, legacy about music. He was very unassuming. He was delighted to be able to play. He saw it as the best form. His whole social life was around music. Mm. Michelle? Probably one of the finest exponents of traditional music ever. Johnny and Dennis, they, they saw real hardship in their younger life. And I think they appreciated life more later in life. So for them to be out playing and enjoying music and, and having enough yeah. was, 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 was enough for them. They weren't conscious of being famous. They weren't trying to be famous. Yeah. They weren't conscious of, be, of, of leaving a legacy be, uh, you know, behind them. Yeah. They were just 
playing brilliant music for the sheer love of it. Bertie, Johnny's way with people. In Dan Connell's in Nochnagree, I, I used to observe him, you know, he had a great eye on the stage. When he winked, you know, where he was at, and he could see some fella coming in the door, he could gauge the spirit of the crowd very, very, very quickly. But what I always observed with him was during break time then he might have played for a set or two sets and then there might be a break someone might be singing or something Johnny would go off the stage he'd go down to the bar but he'd never go down and talk to the musicians or the fellas that were all around him above dancing it was down maybe back to the very back of the bar he'd go to a man that might be on his own with nobody to talk to and before Johnny would leave him that man would be in stitches laughing Brian, is that distinctive style of Johnny Leary's in danger of being lost by focus and ever quicker pace? No, I wouldn't say so, because I do think that uh, every generation produces gurus, was like myself, that just take it on and take a serious interest in it. And, I, you know, I've seen there, take the session I went to in Killarney, you know, once upon a time I was the young fella going in learning from Jimmy Dial totally obsessed with my grandfather's music studying it 24-7 devoting all my teenage years to it and you know, you're told at the time geez, what you're doing is brilliant and it's so unique, but then I'm my late 20s now and I see younger musicians doing the exact same thing as what I did Johnny wouldn't have ever tried to copy exactly one certain musician and I don't think I ever set about to copy him either in a direct way, I think it's better to take the influence take Jimmy Dial's influence, take all the other musicians' influence, but very much pass it on authentically. Donald, you have a verse on Tom Petty. Is it a verse on him or by him? It was a poem written by Guinea Willeman, Ty Goldeneen, many years ago, about Tom Billy. And the poem is really written from the donkey's perspective and how the donkey saw himself or herself as Tom Billy's guide around the countryside here where we're standing now Tom would have been familiar with all these these roads and of course the, the donkey and Tom were totally inseparable because they depended on each other this is I think really captures something in a very special way and I'll just give one verse of it I guided you all your ways in the bright and the dark days they were all just dark to you, dark as night. And somehow, secretly, instinctively, I knew, I knew you were blind. I had to find your way. Mighty, no. mighty. That's fantastic, <laughs> mighty. Johnny Leary, the 6th of June 1923 to the 9th of February 2004, on this centenary month of his birth. The memories, experiences, stories in Malagavan, Galan. Cadbury's, Scarter Glen, Killarney, Kenny Gwilla, Knocknagree, and Bally Desmond, guided by Ellen Healy with over a thousand of her father's tunes, and Brian O'Leary further developing his grandfather's music. Michelle O'Sullivan's musical commitment and skill, Donald Hickey's love of the music, the people, and the place, and Bertie O'Leary and Johnny's help of the lonely. All of that and the recordings of Johnny's playing bring the music to an ever wider audience and develop it from generation to generation. On today's programme, Siobhan Lewis looked after the sound and post-production was by Colette Foley. From me, Frank Lewis, until the last Saturday in July, the 29th, when we'll be by the sea in more of the wonders of our Kerry story. Until then, the luxuriant growth. A time to swim and swim. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for your company. Francis Jones will be with you after the news. And Ellen, Michelle, Brian, 
Johnny Larry and Bally Desmond a piece of music to play us out what are you going to play us out on? So we're going to play two jigs now that Johnny learned directly from Tom Billy the first one is called The Trooper and the second one is Tom Billy's Very good. 